Here we are in a series that's called Getting a Grip. And this morning, as I just prayed, I want to speak about getting a grip on priorities. The reason I wanted to touch on this is I came across a situation that I wonder if it happens to you. It's a church down south that they had an advertisement in the yellow pages, and this preacher was going through the area when he was preaching at this one church, and he had this, he saw in this another church advertising the yellow pages, and it was called the Church of the Grill. He was curious what this meant. So he contacted and got a hold of somebody, and he says, well, are you a church? What, do you do? what is this? And the guy at the other end who answered the phone explained this. We were a church. We wanted to do a real missions outreach in the inner city. So what we did is we started having chicken suppers and providing meals to people. And people said this was so good. It was so good. Some of our ladies who were such excellent cooks, they decided that what they would do is maybe on the side they would sell. And then it wasn't long. People in the community showed up every Sunday and wanted more and more of these meals. And we got more and more busy and uh, making the meals on Sundays. And man, it was bringing in money for us as a church, and we were doing really good. That after a while, we decided to drop the church part and just keep the chicken dinners going. And so what we are is we're a chicken carryout place, but we kept the name Church of the Grill. Now, you and I may look and say, that's silly, that's sad. I sit back this week and say, we haven't gone that far, but have we lost our priorities as a church? Have I shifted in priorities in what I'm doing for the Lord? Have I at times gotten so busy doing the normal things of life that I'm forgetting the important things, the things that are really to be beneficial? It is easy in our life to get caught up in busyness. We have so much technology before us. This technology is supposed to make life easier and less stressful and less busy. And you know it's not like that. You know it's gotten to a point that many of us struggle with the tyranny of the urgent. We get so caught up with... I mean, honestly, we're sitting here right now to worship, and a whole lot of us are thinking about what we're doing later today instead of worship. We're so occupied with other activities that this is supposed to be our priority right now, but we just kind of stick it in. Eisenhower said it this way when he was talking about being busy and getting caught up with important and non-important things. He said what is really important is seldom what is urgent. And then he made the comment, what, is, what we think is urgent, urgent is seldom really important. That happens to us all the time. Now, some of us were lucky enough that somebody may point it out to us. Back in the time when all of a sudden industries were expanding and exploding, and you had companies like Beth, U.S. Steel, Bethlehem Steel growing, one of those who worked in the laid office was Charles Schwab. Schwab excuse me. He was overwhelmed by the busyness of his everyday life. His friend, John D. Rockefeller, said, Hey, I know a fellow who could help you out. He's a consultant. Schwab said, I don't have time for a consultant, especially a time management consultant. But because his good friend recommended this fellow, he said, I'll agree, I'll meet with this Ivy Lee. Ivy Lee came in, watched Schwab work for a day, and then said, here's what I recommend to you. I recommend for you to get a better handle on your life that what you do is every day you write down the six most important things you could do this day in order to benefit what your, your business or whatever it may be. Six, only six. 
Write them down. At the end of the day, you look at the list and you check off which one of those six you accomplished. If you didn't accomplish them or whatever is left, that goes to the next day's six list. Don't put anything more than six. And you follow this practice for 30 days. At the end of 30 days, you send me a check for whatever you think this advice was worth. At the end of the 30 days, he sent him a check worth tens of tens of thousands of dollars. He said it changed his life. Just simply learning to prioritize what is really important. Now, some of us don't have the benefit of somebody sitting down and giving us time consultant. Some of us were caught up short by some serious situations. This week, we happened to have the privilege of going to a funeral of a friend of our church. Some folk of families here, and it was a beautiful service. What I found really, really interesting is this godly woman who has gone to be with the Lord had such a wonderful testimony. But several people pointed out that when she found out that she was given a, a terminal illness by the Lord and had limited time, that she upped her game spiritually in certain areas. It wasn't that she wasn't living for the Lord before, but when she had limited time, all of a sudden she put extra effort into several different points of her life. What would happen to you if this week you found out you have just another year to live? What changes would you make? What things would you say they're no longer that important? I'm going to focus here. Now, Paul had that experience, and it wasn't because of a medical doctor. But God sat him down and put him in a spot, a jail, where he had to reevaluate his priorities. It wasn't that he wasn't living for the Lord. He was like you. Like a lot of you who was trying to do right, trying to live right, and trying to practice what is right. But because he was put aside, he had this time out, if you would. It helped him to just refocus some things. And as we go through his account... We have Paul sitting in jail at the moment. He talks about in verse 13 of Philippians chapter 1. That's where we're at this morning. The book of Philippians chapter 1. He talks about in my bonds. He's in jail. He says that, you know, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going to be. I, I really am becoming more confident. But at the moment that he's writing, there is still is some uncertainty. How much time does he have left? When he was first jailed, he didn't know if he'd be executed or not. He didn't know if he had a month, a year. He didn't know. And so it causes him to pause, to think. And so what happens, he writes in this letter, and as he writes, the first chapter reveals a lot of his heart. It reveals to us what he said is really most important in my life now, that I have moments to sit and to ponder and to think I'm getting a grip on my priorities, what is really important to me. And what he lists out, what I see that he brings out in this first chapter, are priorities that ought to be our most important priorities. What were they? What was it that all of a sudden he said, this is going to be my focus more than ever before? Number one, loving the people that God put into your life. Loving the people that God puts into your life. He's going to write to these people, and he's going to be very expressive, as we'll see in a few moments. But let me set the scene. These people aren't people that he lives with like family members. 
These people aren't people that he rubs shoulders with every single Sunday. Paul had come to this city about 10 years before he had even written this epistle. When he came to the city, there was no church, there were no believers. He looked for some people to get together with. He looked for some Jewish community. There wasn't even that. So he finds some of the Jewish ladies down by the riverside. He meets Lydia. He ministers to her, to her household. Then he goes into the city of Philippi and he starts ministering. There's a young girl who follows him and who keeps on calling out things about Paul. She has a demon in her. This demon is giving messages about Paul. He turns and casts out the demon. Her handlers, who were making money off of this girl who could tell futures or whatever she had abilities to do, they got mad that all of a sudden their moneymaker, all of a sudden the demon is gone. This girl is like any other normal teenage girl, young lady. And so they started a riot. Paul gets put into prison because he's at the center of this riot. You know this portion of the story. He is sitting in jail after he's been beaten by the officers, the city leaders. And at midnight, instead of whining and complaining about how it hurts, it's sore, this isn't comfortable, he and Silas with them, they are singing praises. And you remember this account. All of a sudden there's an earthquake. Their chains fall off. The prison door opens up. The jailer, thinking all the prisoners have escaped, comes running in. He's going to commit suicide because he lost the prisoners. And Paul calls out and says, don't do yourself harm. We're still here. We haven't escaped. Even though we could, we've stayed. The jailer takes him to his own home. The jailer takes care of their wounds. And the jailer asks that most blessed question, what must I do to be saved? And the jailer that night and his household respond to the gospel. The next day, Paul doesn't leave the prison. He stays there, and he has the city leaders come and escort him out because they realize they made a mistake by putting him in prison. And so it says at the end of Acts 16, he went and met with Lydia and the other believers that he had met these last few days. Could be the jailer, his family. And then he leaves. That is at the time of his second missionary journey. Then, a couple few years later, in the third missionary journey, he revisits. Some say it's for three months, three weeks, we aren't sure. But we read about it in the book of Acts, that Paul comes and revisits these people, and he specifically says, we visited those in, in Philippi. Then he leaves, and he never has any kind of visit once again. And so now we're probably seven years beyond the time that 10 years when he first visited, seven years from his second visit. But we read in the book of Philippians that these people were the only church that communicated with him, that wrote him, that said, how are you doing, Paul? Others wrote him about problems, but this was the only church that expressed concern for Paul, that still cared about him, that didn't forget about the missionary that went to another field. And so Paul is going to be responding to these people. And when he responds, we're going to know and we're going to find out that this is, this is a good group of people. This is a normal type of church, like you folk. People who are caring, people who are loving, people who are trying to do what's right. They aren't perfect. They have problems like we all have problems. They have some challenges in their church. One for one, two ladies couldn't get along that he's going to write about. But he's writing these people and he's basically saying to them, you know something? 
you know, I, I want to help you out because he makes the comment that you people are under persecution. You read that at the end of chapter 1 of Philippians where he says in commenting to them, he makes this, this observation. He says, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition. And he goes on, verse 29, For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ not only to believe but also to suffer having the same conflict which you saw in me, getting put in prison, getting beaten. And so Paul writes to these people. And he's saying, I, here I am, I, I'm sitting in jail, but I have the time, I have the opportunity, I want to love you more than I've loved you in the past. And he writes to them, and he's very expressive to this group of people. Okay, he writes to them and he shows his compassion. Look at how he writes, opens his heart. We go back to chapter 1. He says, When I think of you, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, and I make requests with joy. You thrill my heart. You people are a blessing to me. You know, he goes on, he says in verse 5, he says, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, it has been a delight. He says in verse 7, Even as it is proper for me to think this of you, because I have you in my heart, not as much as, or in as much as both in my bonds and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers. You folk have been involved in my life, and I love you for it. For God is my record, verse 8, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. He's made it clear, I love you enough that I'm praying for you. I love you enough that I'm going to take the time to communicate with you. I love you enough that I'm going to encourage you who are going through persecution and tough times. And I'm going to write this epistle whose theme is rejoice, rejoice in all things. And again, I say rejoice. Look to the Lord. Trust in the Lord as we heard about. And he even writes later on, he says in verse 26, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming again to you. I'm planning to come. I, it's going to take me hours, days. It's going to be hard to visit with you, but I want to do this with you because I really care. Now, we hear stories about people, silly stories, about people who should be caring, but they get caught up with other stuff. You've heard that silly story about this man sitting in a stadium at a football game during the playoffs, and he's on the 50-yard line. And there's an empty seat right next to, this, to him, but the rest of the stadium is sold out. And somebody makes comment to him from behind and says, Hey, that's amazing that that seat next to you is open and such a wonderful seat. And he says, Oh, that seat belonged to my wife. She was a season ticket holder. And the guy says, Oh, wow. And she didn't come to this game? And he says, Well, she's dead. Oh, I'm really, really sorry. I'm really sorry that your wife died. Yeah. But did any of the relatives, were they interested in coming and taking her spot and using the seat? Well, I asked them. They're all busy. They're at her funeral today. You know, you look at that and you go, whoa. You know, it's a silly story about how people get their priorities mixed up when it comes to loving people. But it's not so out of the abnormal of what happens to people in real life. As silly as it sounds. It happens to people like you and me. Good people that we can end up like Charles Quincy Adams, the grandson of John Adams. 
He writes about a time in his life he kept a diary every day. And in this diary, he writes about how this one day, his young teenage son came and asked him to go fishing. And in it, he said, I spent the day fishing with my son. A wasted day. His son also kept a diary. His son wrote on that very same day, when fishing with my dad, the best day ever. Sometimes we end up like Adam's. We end up forgetting the people that we really love, the people God has put into our lives. It could be family that we get caught up in just taking for granted. It could be brothers and sisters, parents, grandparents. And we all of a sudden get distracted. But the family that he's talking about in this text is he's talking about this family. This family that we can get so caught up with our other part of our life, we forget to love here. We forget to care the way we're supposed to care so that the world would see that we are loving. And so I would encourage you and challenge you to rethink, revisit, how can you better love one another this week, this month, this Christmas season, this Thanksgiving season? Maybe you should do what Paul did. Maybe you should let others know you appreciate them. Maybe you should go and visit some. Maybe you should have some come to you. Maybe it would be not such a great challenge to personally write some people and let them know. Maybe it would just be starting to think well of one another without having a critical spirit when we walk to our cars, get in our cars and say, so did you see what so-and-so said or did or how they acted? And to say, I am going to rethink this idea of loving others the way Christ wants me to. My family, my family. And improve in this area. That's a priority. That's a challenge. Is what will you do to better love others that God puts into your life this week? The second priority that he, leads, that he lays out here is this. Sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel that God has put into your care. Not only loving the people God has put into your life, but sharing the gospel that God has put into your care. We know this. We know that the Apostle Paul was called to share the gospel, particularly to the Gentiles. That's why he went to Philippi, because it was a Gentile city. And we know that for about the last 20, 24 years, Paul has been doing it by the time he writes this letter. He has been actively engaged after he was trained to go on a missionary journey, another missionary journey, a third missionary journey, and then to minister the gospel and to share the gospel. We know that it cost him, that he was burdened, that he was hurt, he was attacked, but he continued to share this gospel. And because of sharing the gospel, that's why when he writes Philippians, he's sitting in jail. He is jailed at that moment for sharing truth, giving out the word of God, and others were upset that he's giving it out. So he ends up in prison. And from prison, where God has taken him out of circulation, he's writing to these people, and he's saying, sharing the gospel is still my passion. It is something that I really, really am engaging in and want to do. Look at how he talks about this in verse 12. He's writing to explain to these people, he says these words to them. 
I would that you should understand, brothers, sisters, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. He's referring to this question. Why is Paul in jail? for sharing the Word of God? Why is he being persecuted? Why is he out of circulation when he is doing such a good thing? It has happened unto me for the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are now manifest in the palace, in the imperial household, and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord have waxed confident by my being in prison. They are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And he's talking about that. He says, when you and I hear some people who have that bravado, that testimony, to get out the gospel, to give out the tracts without, without shame, without embarrassment, it motivates us to do the same thing. But he goes on. He says, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add to my bonds, but the other, they do it out of love knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Either way, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice, because I want the gospel to go forth no matter what. This is an amazing account and testimony of a man sitting in prison who says, this is a priority in my life, to get out the gospel. Even after he's been doing it for decades, he still wants to do it. He is a man who is sitting in jail because he gave out the gospel, because he did it, it causes him this problem. But he's not going to stop. He's not going to back away. He says, I'm going to still do it. I'm going to still do this even though I've got problems. I'm, I'm in an uncomfortable place. He gets so focused on giving out the gospel, he realizes that, you know what? That God wants me to do this even though I've got difficulties. I ought not to forget about the needs of the lost around me. you got difficulties. you got problems. You got health issues, you got school issues, you got roommate issues, you got you got yard issues, you've got all kinds of stuff going on in your life. And it's busy and it's challenging and it's difficult at times. You got inflation, you got elections, and aren't you thrilled by all the commercials? And you're going and saying, Oh, it's just crazy. And yet for all the craziness in our life, where is sharing the gospel? It is so easy for us to get caught up with the busyness of life, we forget to share the gospel. Paul said, I'm sitting in jail, I'm limited, but I'm still going to do what I can to share the gospel. In fact, he makes this comment, he says, this problem that I have right now, sitting in jail, these chains are a chance. God didn't put me here by mistake. God is no dummy. God has me in this prison for the falling out of the furtherance of the gospel, he said. You know what's interesting? That word for furtherance is the word that is used by the group of people who would go before the army. And they would plow the trail. They would cut the trees. They would make sure the road is there. They would build the bridges. It was the Roman engineers that they went ahead and they made it possible that the army would march. He says, that's why God has put me here, to clear a path for the gospel. And in his case, he's saying, because I'm sitting here, I'm chained to a Roman officer, I get a chance to witness to him. 
He has no choice. And I get to witness to him. And when they change the four different rotations, I get to witness to them and them and them. And I'm in this imperial palace. They're taking and talking about it in their barracks. They're talking about the other people who are working in the palace. And the gospel is being put in the palace there in Rome where he says, I wouldn't have had an audience before. But because I'm in their prison, I get to speak to all these people that I never would have been able to speak to before. In fact, Paul goes on and he says... I want to get this gospel out. And even though others are doing it in a wrong way or for the wrong motive, I still want to get out. He makes that comment that causes you and us a little bit of confusion. He says, some are doing it for contention. They're sharing the gospel. What's he mean by that? The word contention is the word for politically canvassing, to get people to follow you. It is the idea of you promoting yourself. There are people in Philippi or in Rome, wherever, that he says they are motivated to give out the gospel, some out of good reason, but others because they want to show me up. They want to outdo me. For some reason, they think that it's their goal in life to have a bigger, better ministry than the Apostle Paul. And he says, and you know, they're doing it and they're giving out the word and their motives may not be right, but he says, whether their motives are right or not, I'm rejoicing that the gospel is getting out. Maybe they're all about building a bigger church, but I don't care as long as they're giving out the gospel. If they're giving out the word of God, I'm rejoicing because the gospel is the most important thing that the world needs. They need the gospel more than they need the Democrats or the Republicans. We need the gospel, my friend. We need to give it out. And giving out the gospel is the most important priority we have as believers as we glorify the Lord is giving it out. But we get sidetracked. We as a church can get sidetracked. We can get caught up in other activities and ministries and good things and forget getting out the gospel. What he is revealing for us is that God puts us in different situations for us to give out the Word of God. There isn't any mistake made by God for the way that God can advance the gospel. God can do it even in the most unlikely situations. Wearsby writes about his own personal experience when he says that while he was in the hospital, while recovering from my serious auto accident, I received a letter from a total stranger who seemed to know just what to say to me to make my days brighter. In fact, I received several letters from this person. Each one was better than the one before. Then when I was finally able to get around, I met him personally. I was amazed to discover he was blind, a diabetic, handicapped because of a leg amputation, and since this writing, he's lost his other leg, and that he lived with and cared for his elderly mother. If ever a man bore chains, this man did. But if ever a man was free to pioneer the gospel, this man was. He was able to share Christ in high school assemblies, before service clubs, at the Y, before professional business meetings that had been closed to ordained preachers. My friend had the single mind. He lived to share the gospel. Consequently, he shared the joy of furthering the gospel. Our chains may not be as dramatic or as difficult as this man I'm writing about, but there is no reason why God cannot use our chains in the same way. 
You know what, what I'm talking about? I'm talking about how some of you end up with diseases in your family. God made no mistake with that. God is opening up doors with people in the medical field that I would never get to meet, but you get the chance to share the gospel. God has put some of you in high school experiences on teams with other athletes, not to build a name for yourself, but to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. That we aren't going to get that opportunity, but God has given you that mission field. God might put into your home, into your family, your, your lifetime, difficulties like fires, like accidents, that will open the door for you to be able to share the gospel with people that otherwise may not be attentive to it, may not come to a church, but they would listen to you. God has put some of you in places like classrooms or business offices where you have the opportunity to proclaim Christ, you might feel it's a chain. You might feel it's a difficulty. And it may be busy. But let me ask you, in all the busyness, and all the difficulty, are you sharing the gospel? That is to be the priority here. And Paul says that while I'm sitting in prison, even though I didn't have the same opportunity to do it before, I'm still going to do what I can to share the gospel. Loving others sharing the gospel, his third major priority was living for Christ all the days that God gives me. Where God puts me, living for Christ. He makes the statement in the middle of this where he says, and back up into that passage in verse 20, where he says these words, according to my earnest expectation, my hope, he says, this is my desire, that in nothing I shall be ashamed but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. I find it extremely interesting. Here's his goal. Here's where he says, I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to hide Christ. I don't want to be an embarrassment to Christ. I want Christ to be magnified. Do you understand what he's talking about? He is talking about, I want to present Jesus... Like, like a magnifying glass, like a microscope. I want to make Jesus bigger to the people that I come in contact with. I want them to see Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is, not just in my body. I find that's an interesting statement. You and I might magnify Jesus in our song service, in our spirit, in our intentions. Paul took it a step further. He says, I want to make sure that I magnify Christ in real life. Not just intentions, not just in the future, but right now, right here and now, in whatever I'm doing, the way I act or react, the way I think, the way that I handle my finances, the way I work, the way I treat other people, the way I treat relatives, how I talk to others, how I interact with my co-workers. I want to be magnifying Christ, living for Jesus, that they would say, there goes Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just about a worship service. Oh, it is easy for us to say, let's magnify Jesus by singing here. And we ought to, and we should. But he is saying, I want to magnify Christ out there where it really counts, where we're interacting with people, where it's a real challenge. And Paul says, here's what I need to do. And, and he says, I, I, I want to do this. I want to do it not just on Sunday, but on the weekdays. And why is it? 
because he gives us his motto for life in verse 21. For to me, Christ. That's the literal translation. For to me, Christ. Very emphatic to me. This is me. This is what I want to be. For me, it's all about Christ, not about self. That's an amazing thought when you start going through some of what he's talking about. How he said it elsewhere, he said early in another book, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ that lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. This is exactly what Jesus called his disciples to do. When he calls them, he says, if any of you would follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, you will find life. This is exactly what Jesus said in John 15, where he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And he goes on, and he makes this comment, without me, you can do nothing. Rely upon me, serve me, bear fruit for me. Let me see if I can illustrate with silliness. I'm going to put a name up from history, from contemporary time, ancient time. I'm going to put a name up. What do they stand for? What do you know them for? What was their thing that stands out about them? You know, in one word. You just, you just shout out the word. We'll, we'll do Thomas Edison. You got it, okay? Whatever you all said. Okay. It has to do with something with inventing stuff, okay? Cars, Okay. Slinging food in some way, shape, or form. Okay. It has to do with food stuff. It's all about basketball. It's all about football. Okay. It's all about football. Writer. Scary novels. Okay. That's what stands out. What'd you say? Captain America. Thank you. Okay. You know, you know, this is true, not just of those people. You go back, some of you are still there, in high school. There was people that were known for stuff. Okay. You had the people who were known as the nerdy students. It was all about, they would get upset if they got a 99. Okay. You, you probably, in your, you had those who were the jocks. They were all about the sports. Okay. You had those who were the class clown. You remember them. They were the ones who were always the cut-ups. Then you got those who were all about making the cars go faster and bigger and louder. Then you had some of those who were, they were the music people. It was all about music. When you think about them even now, you think, oh, they fall in some of these categories. And then you have those who, whew, they were all about dating. Whew, you know, they, they, they couldn't be without a boyfriend or girlfriend you know, for 10 minutes. They would dump the one, and two minutes later, they're with somebody else. People do this. They fall into these. You do too. People know you by something. My question is, what are you known for? Paul says, I want to be known for living for Jesus. That they would think about me that I'm magnifying Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, I want this to be done not just in heaven, which we all look forward to, which Paul even comments on. Look at how he says about magnifying Jesus. This is a wonderful passage where he goes on. He says, whether by life or by death, he could die at the end of verse 20. He still could die. He says, but for to me to live is Christ, even though dying is better. 
And by the way, the truth is, one day we're going to magnify Jesus in heaven. And we all say, great, we want to be there, we want to get there. But he's saying, don't focus on just magnifying Jesus in heaven, magnify him now. And he goes on, he makes this comment, he says, I want to do it now, in this life, in this body. I want to do it during the week, even though I've got major challenges that are facing me. i got people problems that are they're trying to undermine me. I've got execution possibly sitting there. And he says, yeah, I know dying would be better. Would you agree with that? If you were the Apostle Paul, would dying be something better than sitting in jail? You're not sure. He said it would be better, it would be great gain. Why would he say that? Why would he say dying would be better than sitting here? Yeah, he'd be in heaven. He'd be done with the problems of this life. He'd be with Christ and with the others. It would be far better. He makes that comment. Look at the words. He says, he says, for me to live is Christ. Dying is much better. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet, you know, I'm torn. I have a straight. I'm in a straight. I have a desire to be in heaven, to be with Christ, which is far better. And we understand that. We understand exactly what he's saying. It would be great to go to heaven where we can magnify Christ, but magnify Christ now and here. And Paul is willing to do this. He is saying, Jesus, I'd rather be with you right now. I'm sitting in this prison, and things aren't the way that I really want them to be, but I'm going to make them a place where I can serve you and do my very best and live for you. Even though it's not my desire to be in this jail, I'm going to do your will. I'm going to serve you in my body, while I'm in prison, the way I handle the difficulties, the cussing, the cursing from the guards, the belittlement that I might face if I end up going on trial, I'm going to magnify you. I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to let people see you. I'm going to live for you no matter what. And it just strikes me that he says, here's how I'm going to magnify and live for Christ. I will joyfully surrender to whatever he has put me in right now. And then he makes comment, I will joyfully serve other believers. Interesting how he does this. He says, I have a desire to go. It would be far better. But he says in verse 24, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you people. My desire is to get out of here, Paul says. But to serve Christ and to serve you, he said, that is more needful. I will serve I will stop, and he says, I will serve you people by writing you a letter, by praying for you. He's saying, I will take time to come and visit you. Even though, even though I'd rather be in heaven, I'm going to come and take... The, uh, it, it's going to be difficult, but I'm going to come and see you. He's writing to them, and he says, I am doing all this for this one motive. At the end of verse 25... I'm going to serve Christ. I'm going to lift him up so as to serve Christ by helping believers in the furtherance of their joy of faith. His idea here is to magnify Jesus, to lift up Jesus, not just on Sunday, but throughout the, every day of the week. His concern is to lift up Jesus no matter where he's at, when it is. Lift up Jesus. His concern is serving other believers. This is how I'm going to lift up Jesus. I'm going to help other people to just grow. I'm not going to sit on the sidelines. 
and be come to church on Sunday morning, don't participate, don't do anything, and just go home and do my own thing. That's not where Paul is at. Paul is saying, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put effort out to personally help you as a church to further your faith, to help you to grow in Christ. I want you to have the joy of your faith. When you get discouraged, when you get down, I want to be an encouragement to you. So I ask myself and, I, and to reevaluate and say, what are we doing as a church? What am I doing as a minister? What am I doing as a member here? What am I doing now to help other believers to grow, to rejoice? And I sat down and I started thinking, what could we be doing? What could some of us be working at better? Could it be teaching a class? where you're helping to strengthen people? Could it be visiting some people who are going through tough times? You're so busy. You're so occupied. Everything's... But taking the time to visit a widow, a shut-in. Prioritizing by saying prayer. It would be good to pray with others. Prioritizing and saying it would be good to serve others. As difficult as nursery is, sound systems are, cleaning, doing projects that nobody sees, I'm going to serve. As difficult as it is to open up your home and have people in to help them to rejoice in the joy of their faith, to just get encouragement. If it means somebody is willing, they can't come to the service, this is church. They're at home. They're viewing. It's weird to sing by yourself in front of your TV. But you could get a group of people and go to their home and sing with them and give them that real singing experience. You say, what, what about you know, organizing some ministry? It's always hard to organize getting people to do stuff. But that's where Paul is serving others living for Christ by serving others, even though I have other desires, even though I have other busyness, I'm going to stop and think about what can I do for you? What can I do for others? So we come back to the question, what about, where, where are your priorities right now? Right now, what do, what do your kids know you for? What do the other kids know you for? What does your time, your tablet, your schedule show your values? What is your life focusing on? Loving the people God has put into your heart? Sharing the gospel with people? Living for Christ and magnifying Him by serving others? By rejoicing in Him? This fellow, centuries ago, he was a young man by the age of 20, had graduated from the University of Cambridge with the top degrees. At 24 years of age, he got all of the awards that were possible in the field of mathematics. He was a genius. But he, as a believer, heard a sermon, sat back, and thought through this idea, what are my priorities? And he concluded where he wrote this, he said, I have grasped at shadows. So he changed. He got on a ship, he went over to the Far East... And start a missions works. And when he went, this was his prayer, let me burn out for you. In his first seven years on the mission field, 
He learned three languages and translated the entire New Testament into three different languages. He's brilliant. But what good is his brilliance if he wasn't living for Christ? You may have heard that old story that's told about this guy who was going across a period of of, a parcel of land. He got tired, so he stopped. And while he was sitting, they suggest this is what happened. He sat on a rock, and maybe he was pounding his staff on the dirt, but he heard a clink. And when he heard the clink, he realized that's not a stone. He uncovered what was there, and he found a chest. And inside this chest were riches. There was monies and there was, there was gems beyond value. And he thought to himself, what do I do? Can I take this? He knew the law of the land. The law of the land is whoever owns the property, that's theirs. You take it, you could be arrested. You're stealing. So he thought, here's what I'm going to do. I want these riches. He buried it all. And the story goes that he went home and he did whatever it required to buy that property to get those riches. He sold what he had. He borrowed what he didn't have so as to get this parcel of land and then possess those riches. Do you remember who told this story? It was Jesus Christ. And he was saying, this is how it is for the believers. The real believers, when they understand what the kingdom of heaven is all about, they will drop everything... And they will make it their priority to earn the rewards from Jesus Christ. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Is that your priority?